Welcome to Shape the Conversation. This is a podcast where normally me, John Davis, and my co-host, Nicole Mears, talk about working with the team here and growing Shape.io from our offices in Bend, Oregon. Nicole is the week off this week, and I was lucky enough to welcome Michael Mack into the Shape studio for our first interview of the podcast. I'm really excited for you guys to hear this conversation. Michael's a super interesting guy that I've been lucky enough to meet a bunch of times over the last six to eight months and get to know him a little bit better and really learn a lot from him and his experiences and how he talks about his experiences and kind of translates them in a way that makes it easier for you to learn from him. He's seen things that a lot of entrepreneurs can only dream of. Um, In his 30s, he left the consulting career to open up restaurants. He believed that America in the 80s was going to start embracing a more healthy lifestyle and part of that being eating habits. So Michael set out to really find a restaurant that was making food that matched his vision and expand nationally. And he had some big dreams. And him and his business partner eventually found that chain of restaurants that they liked, that there was only two locations. And over the years, expanded that to 125 locations under the brands Suplanation and Sweet Tomatoes. They covered 15 states. It was a crazy fast growth story as, as we kind of talk about a little bit, but it was definitely came with ups and downs. Michael was able to grow the company and eventually take it public, but after that, growth slowed a little bit, costs continued to rise, and with the pressure higher than ever, the board, which included his father, eventually decided to fire Michael. And we really dig into this moment kind of in the podcast. And, and what we did was I, I broke it down into three different sections. So Michael's career, as I see it, breaks into three phases. One, he leaves to, to found a company. He's kind of high on expectations and um, all the possibilities. He executes on that vision and a lot of his dreams come true only to see himself fired from that same company he founds. And how he reacts to this is, I think, the most interesting part of Michael's story and is really a testament to vulnerability and humbleness in the face of not only just challenges, but when times are going well. And I think these are virtues that maybe we don't focus on as much as we could in today, today's world. But for Michael, they really became some of his most powerful attributes that helped him to regain the trust of his board. And kind of the third phase, as I see Michael's career, was he eventually was rehired by that board as CEO, a very Steve Jobs-like kind of trajectory um, in terms of being fired and, and rehired. But Michael really credits that you know, opportunity for learning, as he calls it, to what helped him lead the company even more successfully this, uh, during his second tenure as CEO through the 90s. So Michael's a really interesting guy to talk to, as I think you'll find out. He is, you know, now coaching CEOs and people through difficult times and through growing their careers. And I, 
I know he's somebody that everybody can learn from and I really just hope that by looking at these three phases and I dug up some old news articles and some LA Times articles from the 80s and it was fun to hear Michael kind of respond to some of those quotes from years past and, and reflect on those as we talked and the way he describes what he calls head trash I found really powerful. He talks about battling your own emotions and feelings and ways to cope with that so that you can make better decisions and and foster trust in the people around you. So we're going to kick off here the interview and you'll hear me kind of jumping in, kind of setting the premise a little bit for Michael and then I'll read some quotes. We'll get Michael's initial feelings about where his head was at during those times and the conversation kind of moves from there. So here we go. Our interview with Michael Mack, founder and former CEO of Garden Fresh Restaurant Group. All right, Michael, thanks so much for being here. At this point, I would have given you a a little intro so the the listeners kind of know a little bit about who you are. So I wanted to jump in and uh, I've done some research here on a few articles that from the past, your career and just want to kind of prompt you with those, see what you what you think, kind of where that puts you, and we'll go from there. So the first article I found is from the LA Times, 1986. It comes up Way back. pretty high on Google when, when you search for Michael Mack. And here's a little excerpt from that article. Tony Brook and Michael Mack have launched an ambitious plan to expand their three-outlet soup and salad bar operation to 50 by the end of the decade. The two young entrepreneurs hope their all-you-can-eat self-serve souplination, which they bought two years ago, will ride the coattails of a health food movement and propel them into the big leagues of the restaurant industry. That journey, they believe, will take them throughout California and eventually to other states such as Texas and Florida, and even to Mexico. The company now generates about $4 million in annual sales, and if expansion unfolds, sales by 1990 are projected to reach $90 million. Later in the article, you say, Tony and I had the confidence to make a small company larger. What do you, what do you think about, as somebody, at, at that time, I believe you're 36, um, writing this article, I'm 35, just turned 35 last week, so I, I try to put myself where you're at with three stores there with the ambitious plan for the future. Where do you get that confidence to, to take three restaurants and, and see I can be a spearheading force that helps drive this to 50? Yeah, um, uh, first of all, that's a, that's a wonderful quote to reintroduce me to. Uh, and what's interesting to me is that almost everything in that quote came true, except the specifics of what we wanted to reach by 1990. We, we fell short of that. But the rest of it, we really got there. And that's, I'm actually very touched to be reminded of that. Sometimes you don't quite quite have that, that overall perspective. I'd say there was two things going on with the confidence level. One was a lot of arrogance. We had come out of a very high profile consulting, you know, consulting careers. We thought we knew a lot about business. We did but there was more that we didn't know. And so we were 
we, we just believed we knew what we were doing at the time, and, and time proved that we didn't. There was so much more for us to learn. The second piece was there was a sense of intentionality. In, mm -hmm. in other words, we knew what outcome, I knew what outcome I wanted to create. My partner eventually left. And despite all the, the missteps and the, and the, and the walking into, into places of, of uncertainty and unknown that were unanticipated, I kept the company on the same course. And there was just a lot more course corrections than I ever expected. And so that, that was really, over time, a lesson in what do you do when things go haywire and, and can you find a way to take one step towards whatever that, that big goal you have, whatever that big intention you have. If you can take a step in that direction, then many times the next step becomes a little more apparent. Yeah, what, what I hear a lot when we talk, and you've been lucky enough to impart some of these words on me over coffee and, and over a few meetings, and when, when I hear you talk, you're a real journey-based thinker to me, real process-oriented. You, you, you're spontaneous, but you also like have mantra or daily practices that help reinforce the spontaneity, which I think is a really interesting kind of dichotomy there. Where we're kind of using both perspectives. So do you think that that is an important part of building something ambitious is, is having intentionality and a real clarity of vision, but also being comfortable with the murkiness that might be underneath that clear vision or really that what it what it takes to get something done because I think what we see here all the time is around these offices here even software which is completely different than the restaurant industry that really getting it done is is always a lot messier than you think and making it happen and, and managing tens of restaurants over many states I can't even imagine yeah yeah it's, it's like learning how sausage is made yeah. um, it's little little uh, unseemly sometimes, and from the exterior, it looks like everything's running pretty smoothly. I, I, I think I, I think it's important, as you said, to have a, a clear vision, a clear mission, whatever clear purpose, whatever you want to call it, and to have some comfort with the murkiness that occurs on a day-to-day -day basis. But it's it's not that that comfort comes from being comfortable with your own head trash, whatever you want to call it, your own emotional baggage, the way that the stories that we each make up about the events that are occurring. So, you know, I could have a restaurant that didn't open very successfully. It might fall below expectations. That's a fact. You know, I can, I can say, here was the original budget. Here's where the restaurant actually came in. Here's the delta. But the story that I then make up the messages I tell myself after that is all fantasy. You know, I'm terrible. The, the company's going to fail. I'm going to be viewed as a bad manager. This is the beginning of the unraveling, and we're doomed. That's all made up. And so I think for each of us as leaders, if we can begin to separate what's absolutely true, the facts, which is usually yeah. a minor part of, <laughs> of what's in our head, from the story, then we can kind of observe that story and say, hey, I'm just making stuff up here, and now what do I want to do to try and move forward? And that makes it so much easier to deal with the murkiness and the uncertainty of the moment. Do you feel like you can you put yourself back into this space in 1986 and remember some of that head trash? And do you feel like you have 
more or less kind of head trash now than you did back then, or is it just different? Really good questions. First of all, just speaking of of heads, I had a lot of hair back then. <laughs> I, have, I have none now. Yeah, I, I had. So, so I'll give you one example. I, I I had a level of defensiveness in that in that time period that affected certainly my work with others, uh, not so much with people um, b- below me or, or my peers, but, but people who, you know, shareholders and investors who might challenge me on something. And, and if, if it got to a certain level, I could be a little, I could be a little defensive. And that clearly uh, got in my way in terms of my relationships with some, with some people. As to whether or not, and so and so, a lot of the things that got in my way then, I, I do a much better job with. The dynamics are still the same. You know, I, these things don't go away. We just see them; they lessen in intensity. We have a greater ability to to manage them. And we, well, at least for me, I've discovered more things about myself as I've created a little deeper awareness and have been a little more introspective about here's where I want to go, what's getting in my way, what do I need to do differently? So I don't know that I can measure whether there's more or less. Yeah. I've certainly discovered more. I've certainly dealt with some. And I again, you, you mentioned the kind of journey versus event. It's, it's, not, it's not an event. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. I, I believe we're either kind of uh, growing and thriving and expanding our capabilities in some way, or we're declining, that steady state doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I at one point declared I had, in, the first time I was made aware that I was being defensive, I declared myself cured because I had awareness of it. And of course, that was ridiculous to everybody in the room with me. And So do you think that would manifest in that you'd get criticism or feedback from a shareholder and it would manifest in that you weren't able to see if there was benefit in that criticism or vice and pull that out of it, you just disregarded it completely? Or did you feel like it was just too hard to you, for you eventually to get to that place to see it right and you just made it harder on yourself by being really defensive? What, what ways do you feel like it really kind of popped up during those times when you weren't managing it maybe as well? Yeah, I, I, th- I think it, you know, I, I viewed it as either this person is right or I'm right. You know, there's a right and a wrong here. And of course, that, that is a, a false and not very productive view of the world. And so if, if that person is right and I'm wrong, then I'm flawed in some way. My thinking wasn't, wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. And so I would, I would, you know, resist their thinking often. Sometimes I'd placate them. Sometimes I would push back and, and create a different argument. And over time, I learned to just say, this is just a different point of view. And who knows what's right or wrong? How can I kind of incorporate that into my thinking and just not take it personally? Yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with who I am. Right. It's just a different point of view. And I, that's something I think, especially at the early stages of a venture, that I personally struggle with. You know, it's separating the you from the idea or the in the startup world, it's really the idea. In business world, a little bit more broadly, it's separating the the you from the company. You know, the company has a good quarter, a good month. I'm amazed at how much like during a lot of times that really like is directly tracks to my mood. Sure. And and 
playing sports in the past too. You win the game, like you're a more fun person to be around. You're a, you know better around your family. All these types of things. And do you have you done anything or thought intentionally over the years about ways to kind of like disassociate that? Because you you are a guy working in the consulting world for Bain and Company at that companies where. I would say as an outsider looking in who's never had a job at, at that type of level at a McKinsey or Bain type, that, that's a all-encompassing profession as far as I can tell from the outside, especially through your 20s and 30s as the, the levels who have already gone through that ringer now put you through that ringer. And as it embodies so much of your day, that, that you becomes your job, career, company performance do you feel like it's healthier to try to actively disassociate that? Do you think there's some things that you let in because you need that kind of when, when you're looking at two restaurants and you need to take it to 50, yeah. you, you can't be too numb. You, you can't back off too much. You need some of you to be in there. And have you felt that balance through through the years? Have you felt a change? Have you felt actually you can get better performance by letting go a little bit of some of those things and be a little less defensive and get to the right answers faster? Yeah. So you, you touched on some in- interesting dimensions around this, which is, which is, is my identity wrapped up in, in what I do for a living? And if I create some separation, do I create, create numbness? And what, what I have found is that my job and my career are not who I really am. And that's just a, a process I've gone through of, of kind of examining my self-awareness and, and, and recognizing that no matter how well or badly the business does, I'm the same person. I'm unchanged. And that's upside and downside. I had a good example the other day. I was with a group of CEOs in San Diego that I work with, and uh, I recently accomplished something that was pretty significant. And, and they wanted me to be, you know, pounding my chest and, and high-fiving everybody. And I was, I'm very happy about it. And it's something I'm very, very passionate about. And I put a tremendous amount of energy into. But I'm not defined by that success. It's a great thing in my life. But I'm the same person if I achieved that or didn't achieve that. So I think there's a separation of, of identity, which is different from having or not having passion and a clear sense of purpose. So I'm very passionate about what I'm engaged in right now. I have a real clear sense of purpose around it. I know what I want to accomplish. And I'm less defined by that than, than, than I probably was, say, as a consultant at Bain & Company. My identity was pretty wrapped up in that business. Mm-hmm. As you kind of moved out of this, this early stage of, of moving from three restaurants to, to 10 restaurants, 15 restaurants, I, I can't imagine like the energy enthusiasm around the shareholders and the team and all the problems to solve at that point. But looking back and kind of moving into the, the second passage here that I've got researched, you know, those, those early years went, went smoothly. You know, you, you launched restaurants left and right, the health food craze, you were, you predicted the future in a lot of ways because of that. You know, I think that's something you, deserve a lot of credit for looking at that. 1986, I can't imagine too many people were thinking about carbs or thinking that a salad bar company could pull it off. And and you did. And I think you, you did touch on arrogance kind of earlier. Like, I think there's some healthy balance 
there to get things going, you know, and I think you have to trust yourself to evolve a little bit along the way, but you, you might need to dip into a little bit more of that passion reserve or that, that, that fiber early on. So this, this next kind of passage I, I found in a Harvard Business Re- Review article that you can, you can find, and we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes, but <clears throat> here we go. Okay. Until he was 39, Michael Mack had a perfect resume. A BA from Brown, an MBA from Harvard, six years at consulting firm Bain & Company, and then a successful move into entrepreneurship. As co-owner of a healthy dining chain launched in 1983, his restaurant group Garden Fresh grew rapidly, leaving Mack and his venture capital backers riding high. But then came the smackdown. In 1990, the business started to lose money. Mack's partner, Anthony Brooks, stepped down, and although Mack worked feverishly to cut costs, in April 1991, his directors decided that he should go too. You said at the time, I was out visiting our Rancho Cucamonga restaurant and I got a message from one of our board members, which I returned on my car cell phone. Mac recalls, he told me I was fired and I was rocked to my core. This company was my baby. I called my wife, who was eight months pregnant at the time. And then, since I didn't feel like driving the three hours home, I went to a hotel and spent the evening alone with my thoughts. So I can't imagine the head trash that was filling your mind that night in the hotel. How do you process that and continue on this journey forward? Yeah, so there's a, a, a couple of things that, that come back to me very quickly. One was the second phone call I made was to my dad who'd been an investor in the company and really my mentor since I started this venture. And I hadn't realized the depth of his business savvy or what a great strategic thinker he was. Mm-hmm. And so he, he, did a, he did a marvelous thing. And he was also on the board. He was a significant investor. He said, okay, this is done. You're fired. We're significant investors in the company. And so we're now going to turn our attention to how we can be supportive. When you say we're, you mean you and him still have a big piece of the company. It's still a, a stake in this. It was all of my net worth and a, a nice chunk of his. Mm-hmm. And so he just, he just kind of he kind of defined the mission, you know, as if to say, I know you're pissed off, angry, sad, you know, hurt. Deal with that, but not at the expense of the company because the company didn't really do this. It happened to you. So that was, that was incredibly helpful. The, the second thing, as I processed this over time, was to realize that, that my firing was really my own creation. And, and by that I mean I did some things that weren't as cooperative as they could be with my board. And as I look back on that, I said, wow, if I had been them, I would have fired me as well. And that was a marvelous revelation because it put me back in the position to do something from that circumstance. Did that take weeks, months, hours to kind of come to that? I'd say weeks. Mm. I'd say you know, probably five or six weeks. And, and so I worked on repairing my relationship with the other board members. I was a contributor. I, I met several times with the new CEO to help him out at his request. And uh, eventually the board rehired me uh, three years later. 
And so this was a kind of a profound lesson in accountability for me. And I didn't blame myself for what happened, but I realized that I had, I had, I had a role in it, I had a contribution in it, and that if I had handled myself differently, it, it probably wouldn't have happened. And that was a powerful lesson, because I, I brought that understanding of accountability into the way I ran the company and had a huge impact on our financial performance. When you, you do a lot of CEO coaching now and talk to a lot of CEOs, and when you see them navigating really tough times, I mean, I think in, in terms of tough times, you, you were kind of facing Chernobyl <laughs> here yeah. in terms of, your, you know, there might be some smaller bumps along the way. A lot of times you're coaching people through. What do you first try to hone in on with them to help? Do, do you have them look within first and really assess their emotions? Or do you play psychologist? Or is it more you know, military leader? Okay, let's look at the facts. What do we need to do here? Um, and some of that could obviously vary by person and how well you know them. But do you have a general tact that you, you kind of look at when you're helping coach people through that, if you had somebody in the room going through a tough trial or tribulation? Yeah, I'd, I'd, say, there, I'd say there's there's several ingredients that are very, very important. First, what is it that the individual wants to happen? Mm-hmm. Where do they want to get to? What do they want to be different? There's got to be a desire for a change from the current circumstance, create some energy in that direction. So let's get clear about the outcome that you want to create. Uh, two, What's your contribution to what is not working well here? What have you done to move towards that outcome? What have you done that's getting in the way of achieving that outcome? And that's a process of, of discovery. And then, and then and the, third, the third piece is, is kind of how do they stand in relationship to it? This is kind of back to that identity question. You know, if, 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 if I don't solve this, my career is over. Well, maybe, maybe not, you know, but let's... Let's kind of separate the facts from the story that goes with it. Mm-hmm. And I think those are, those are kind of the starting points. And then if we need to get more tactical, we need to get more tactical. If, if you know, this is a style question where they're pissing everybody off that yeah. they talk to, we can begin to deal with that, so on and so forth. What you've kind of led me through before is, is the way you think about it. And what I like is you kind of talk about separating yourself from it a little bit and being able to look at it and be like, hmm, is it, it's kind of funny how, how uh, you know, intensely you're reacting to this. Well, it's pretty, pretty funny that this, this little bump in the road makes you think your whole career is going down the tubes. And it's so funny how we can let one little negative event spiral us into that negative thinking. And I think especially in those moments when you're really confronted with mm-hmm. – a tough situation is I think those are the times it does really help to go numb yeah. a little bit and, and and go a little bit more zen <laughs> about it and and more try to observe yourself as part of the environment and, and be able to step away from it because I think what we've talked about before a little bit on the podcast is is managing your emotions to the point to where I have to think those those stretches when you were being defensive, people were less likely to bring you bad information. Mm, yeah, and bad information sometimes is probably more important than good, like good news in, in a lot of ways. Right? Absolutely. And the, if through those bad times, are there things you did with your team to kind of like cultivate 
that bad information coming to you? Do you regret some of the ways you handled it during those rough times? Would you would you have handled that differently if you had gone through it this time? I imagine obviously you would, you know, knowing how much you've learned, but yeah, I, I, I want to come back to one thing you said. I don't ever, um, to me, there's a difference between being a little zen and being numb. Mm, okay. And I don't, yeah. I don't ever advocate numbness. Our emotions are, are alive, they're energy, and I think being able to observe them lowers their intensity a little bit. But running away from them, it, it kind of makes them the driver of the bus. They're gonna, you know, each of us had the experience where somebody said something and we kind of blew up. I was like, whoa, where did that come from? Yeah, you feel like you got put into the passenger seat, even even if for five or ten seconds. Yeah, yeah. so what I established kind of early on in my company was um, some values. And uh, they were things like integrity in all actions, uh, accountability for results, respect for each individual, so on and so forth. And then we would have regular discussions about how well we were all living up to all those things. And... You know, and that'd be part of our part of our discussion of the numbers. And then we we'd also just uh, take a day about once a quarter and go off and talk about how are we interacting with one another, how is that working well that we want to sustain, and how is that getting in our how are we getting in our, each other's way? And you know, the rules were they could say anything they wanted about me or to me, even if they didn't think it would be helpful. They just want to get it off their off their chest. And I would. Uh, often have those facilitated by somebody outside so that I could participate fully without having to worry about running what was going on. Some people view that as a little bit uh, touchy-feely, a little bit, you know, kumbaya. I, I view it as incredibly courageous, and, and I think a leader's power lies in his or her willingness to be authentic, uh, and that means sometimes being vulnerable. Mm. And that was one of the hallmarks of my style as a CEO, and one of the foundational pieces of, of the success that the company created. Mm. I, I would say in, in 2018, probably vulnerability is viewed less <laughs> as a strength than maybe it has in the past. What, what really concerns you? Uh, to me, that's a deeply concerning thing to where we look at people in, in leadership or that are working day-to-day -day with teams. And, and one of the things that does strike me about tech, maybe a little bit in contrast to other industries, are that some of the CEOs do seem to be a little bit more authentic at times. You know, they they former computer programmers, they they in the trenches, they're, you know, speaking their mind, they're, they're being real human. But I even see a lot of transformation happen as companies then move to the from kind of the startup phase to the the next phase the leadership tends to run the party line a little bit more it gets a little bit more pre they you know they're less vulnerable and i imagine if i had a company that was growing that rapidly fast too i might think i have all the answers also <laughs> in a lot of times but what can you think of scenarios where being vulnerable was actually a real powerful strength of yours and, and and I think that highlighting those types of things are more can help people tap into that when they are leading or working with people. Sure. I'll, I'll, I'll give you two examples. One, when I realized the importance of purpose and values in an organization, and I created what I believe to be the first version of that, and I presented it to the company at a company-wide meeting. So I had 
you know, hundreds of people in the room. I was I was teary-eyed because I was so touched by what I had created and and so passionate about what I wanted our company to be and what it stood for and kind of letting in how much that dream meant to me personally. And I just allowed them to see my, my, my passion, my caring for it. And a lot of people remember that meeting because yeah. that really galvanized their commitment to the company and they wanted to follow a person who could talk so passionately and so with so much open heart. Yeah. A, a, a second thing occurred, we had a foodborne illness event where we made a lot of people sick. Hmm. And it, that this was a, a true crisis. And of course we had PR involved in the health department and I had a great organization that was taking care of everything. And so my job, I decided, was to talk to the people that, that had become sick. And lawyers said, you can't do that. Hmm. And I said, I'm doing it. Tell me what the boundaries are. And so I did that. And I remember one event, I walked into a hospital where a 12-year-old girl was in critical condition. Her parents had already said some nasty things about us to the LA Times. And as I walked in, and I can kind of feel it right now, as I walked in that hospital door, I just said to myself, this is why CEOs don't do this shit, because they feel so vulnerable as the leader of a company with parents of a sick child. Now, as it turns out, the hospital administrator came down and said, you're an amazing man for being here, but the parents don't want to talk to you. And so I think we left some flowers or something, went on our way. But I'll never forget the feeling of vulnerability. Yeah. And everybody in the company knew where I was. Mm-hmm. Not because I told them, they just, we just were communicating what was going on, how we handling this, what's going on with this article in the LA Times, and Michael's going to visit her. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a, a common theme when you look at your story is that vulnerability. I, I imagine after that the conversation with your dad and you jumped the gun on me, that was part of the third passage I had here. You know, you can tell how much that puts you right back kind of into that. But I imagine walking that next time into the boardroom, right, you, you like probably felt a little smaller, you know, like you, you – your ego had taken a ding, you know, you had to lean into that vulnerability and doing that, taking the meeting, showing you were willing to be humbled and, and work through it. I think you touched on it a little bit, but after three years, they brought you back on as CEO after all that. And the, the passage I had was, uh, you, you touched on it almost word for word, crazy, but you said, I wanted to hear from my father, let's get back at these guys, Max says. But he told me, this is done. Wrap your head around being supportive. We have an investment here. That was a fundamental lesson in accountability. How do I accept responsibility for what I did and move toward what is on my end and the company's best interest? It was the start of a transformation that would eventually result in Max being rehired as CEO by the same board that had fired him. He has since built Garden Fresh in a $300 million company with 117 restaurants in 15 states, operating under the name Supination and Sweet Tomatoes. And he attributes much of that success to the opportunity for learning created by that gap in his resume from this article in 2010. So you, you were able to kind of make that full transformation. And I, I have to think you're one of only a few CEOs that have really had 
are able to look back at their career at a public company and getting fired and rehired, you're able to have that holistic kind of perspective on it. Yeah. And when you look at that and you see CEOs either at the beginning, middle, or end, do you try to get them to like de-emphasize any one moment to kind of see this bigger journey is like vulnerability and humbleness a a common theme that you you are always extolling because you see the virtues of them when I, when I think about you and I think about our conversations I, I do think of kind of zen like I think of you do hate when I, I use the word numb you've corrected me on that a few times now but I view numb, I view it as like a real positive way like you started at the beginning you you're able to you know, whether the results were up or down, I imagine through this next phase of your career when they brought you back, your wife probably saw a little bit more consistent version of you yeah. when you came home at night. Yeah. For me personally, a little bit, I think some people, if they listen to it, they'd be like, all right, well, that next time through, he didn't get as much done or he wasn't as successful because it wasn't consuming every hour. I think there's this belief that you know, if you're not in front of the laptop or grinding every hour of the day, you can't make it as a CEO. But I think there there needs to be a little bit of a pushback on that because I think you probably, that second time through, could have been, were probably even more productive and were working, you know, smarter instead of, you know, wasting a lot of effort. Yeah, I was getting way more done because I was doing it through other people. Right. And mm. and I think the, the the transition that's very I mean there's not many there's not many CEOs that 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 take a company from startup to rapid growth to being publicly held and then and then stay with it as a publicly held company for 10 years. Mm. Because because there's a lot of different phases of that. And I think the challenge for for CEOs is that we all tend to seek stability. Okay, I got this figured out. Now I see how to grow it, and that's the beginning of the end, because there is no stability. It's the second law or third law, whatever. Some yeah. law of thermodynamics. <laughs> yeah. You know, systems begin to, and so do leadership styles. So, so I think it's important for leaders to think about how do I need to transform, purposefully transform, to be the leader of this company going forward, and part of that is how do I work thoughtfully and sustainably you know being at your laptop 24 7 is not sustainable and and they've done enough studies to know that you don't do your best work all the time so how can you pick the areas that are most important and devote the best of what you have to that and set people up around you to do the same thing and to me a lot of that is evolves around around culture you know is it a is it a rules driven organization or is it a purpose and values driven organization purpose and values driven organizations tend to be more self-governing and filled with more inspired people. You get a lot more shit done with inspired people mm -hmm. than people married to their laptops. I think with that in terms of inspiration and, and purpose, where do you where do you balance that with performance? And I think that's where you you kind of even mentioned you you took criticism through those those years, I mean, of it being lovey-dovey or you know touchy-feely, like you said, those kind of things. Did you have any like 
checks and balances in place there to, to try to marry performance alongside of that? Or is it a true faith and trust that we need to focus on, on these mission or these value drivens and, and the revenues and profits are, are a byproduct of that? Well, it's important to remember that this, this whole thing started when I left Bain & Company because I saw the disconnect between great strategy and the lack of a fully aligned organization. Mm. You felt like Bain had the intelligence and they, and they came up with great strategies for a bunch of companies. So for those not less familiar, Bain is consultants that massive corporations come in to solve their toughest problems Absolutely. that they can't solve. And so you're saying you, you'd see Bain come in, lay out great strategic initiatives, but the teams left behind and the employees were not impassioned or to actually execute on that mission. It was like taken with the assumption that you had this passionate workforce and you, you wanted to try to marry those two things. Yeah, and I, I saw the passionate workforce as actually being, in some ways, the more important part because if you have inspired people thinking about the mission of the company and the strategy's a little off, they're going to come knocking on your door saying, hey, I think we need to course correct because I really want this to be successful and I've been looking at this and there's this discussion and this dynamic and so you course correct. Mm-hmm. There was not empirical data for that back then. Through the course of my career, I demonstrated great performance. I had 16 years of positive same-store sales in the restaurant business, which is unprecedented yeah. except for maybe Panera. And I had top-tier margins at my restaurants, which were just kind of inarguable. And people looked at the performance stats we achieved and said, look, this is, a, this is an amazingly well-run company. I'm not going to throw too many rocks at the cultural stuff. We're in a different era now, and there is, there is clear evidence that inspired organizations with clear sense of purpose and values and cultures that have been nurtured by, by thoughtful, authentic CEOs create fundamentally better financial performance. Hmm. You know what? I think that's a great place to, to cap it. Michael, I, I just appreciate it so much you coming in, taking your time, w- walking us through kind of the story. I've learned a lot from talking to you. Hope this is not the last time <laughs> we too. have you in here. I think there's lots of, I could have picked on five or six different topics there to, to talk for a really long time. So you are a humble guy. The one thing I, I do hear you be confident about is you say you're really good with words and you're good with language. So look up Michael Mack's uh, LinkedIn profile. You've got a lot of great articles on there that extol a lot of the same principles you kind of talked about here. One of the things that makes me excited to talk about you and continue to kind of have these, these conversations is the consistency of your message. And to me, what that shows is that it's kind of been proved out the hard way over years and years of a career that's kind of seen all the ups and downs. So go online, look Michael up, see his own words better than I could even filter them. And anything anything you want to leave them with? Yeah, a, a couple things. Well, one, thank you for doing this because every time I talk about this stuff, what I care about, it gets reinforced for me. Secondly, great questions, really, really nice, nicely done. And I, I think the, the third thing that is important, you know, that Harvard Business School article is a great example. Yeah. A lot of CEOs are reluctant to talk about the ups and downs. And I have found that useful because other people can learn from that, but I've learned tremendously by really examining the things that haven't gone well. And I, I don't learn much when 
when things are going well. I learn when <laughs> things are not. So that's that's kind of the gift yeah, of, yeah. Of, of having things go off the tracks. It's a learning opportunity. Definitely, yeah. And I knew from knowing you that you could handle a few curveballs. So thanks for being okay with me bringing up LA time. Oh no, no, that was, good. that was good. <laughs> All right, and so until next time, thanks for listening and over and out from Shape.io headquarters in Bend, Oregon.